Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Uh, the last number of months, a lot of our brothers and sisters have suffered some pretty life-changing circumstances. And as a church, we really want to be there to, to help in particularly difficult situations. We, we have, a, we have a, a sort of a limit in a way where we try to uh, keep our gifts under like $500 to people and stuff like that. But we have experienced some of our, some of our families have been going through things that are way more than just $500. And we feel like we want to be there just as the Lord is an ever-present help in times of trouble. We want to be an instrument through which the Lord provides. So I'm making an appeal to you today that one of the offering designations is called benevolence. So whether it's a gift that you're giving or over and above what you normally give, would you consider for the sake of others maybe to make a special benevolent offering for these who are suffering through these times? We are stretching out to try to give and to make sure they're okay. But I was just thinking... Sometimes it's just good to give the whole body a chance to say, okay, let's give to this. Um, I so appreciate that many of you are still coming to church, even though I keep preaching on Revelation. <laughs> for me, this has been life-changing. Um, for me, as uh, the things that we're going through, as I watch the news and I see all the things that are going through, just seeing how devoted God is to his church how devoted he is to our well-being, safety, and flourishing, even in chaotic times, is just so important. But also to see that the realities of what we're facing in this world are not just political. uh, They're not just people against people. There's a spiritual dimension. And the spiritual dimension is important for those of us who really believe in God It's important if you believe in God, you might as well believe in a spiritual dimension, which means there's a spiritual warfare element to the things you're facing. And so I I wanted to read something to you before we look at at the scripture. One of my heroes was a theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper, who not only was a theologian, but an educator and rose to be the prime minister of Holland. And he was a tremendous writer, and he wrote this. He said, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but there. That is where the real conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. What we've been seeing in the book of Revelation is a pulling back of the veil. What we see is that there there is a monstrous activity. As a matter of fact, the the Bible calls them monsters. The devil is, is, is called a red dragon, a big, fat red dragon. His cohorts in an unholy trinity because he mimics and counterfeits God His cohorts are called the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, two monsters. At the same time, and this isn't going to happen in some far off period, 
where these folks are in activity. They're in activity now. And it has already been opened, the seal which loosed the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's not going to happen in some seven-year period far off. It's happening now. The conflict in the earth has, was predicted in the first century. Think about it for a minute. Why is it that people of a different race, culture, even a different geography can hate so, each other so intensely? Except that it's being spiritually resourced. Matter of fact, that's one of the horsemen. Racial persecution. There's another one that is a horseman of war and conflict. You look at things and you go, well, I mean, sometimes it looks like certain individuals are the devil themselves. Then you can know that it's the devil that is empowering them. And so the Bible is saying, and is very clear about this, that you and I who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be engaged We cannot put our heads in the sand, but we have to be engaged in what will bring us not only victory in our own lives, but victory for our families as well. It is a spiritual engagement. And so in order to do that, you have to understand how to engage spiritually. It isn't just your morality. It's not just your philosophy. It's your devotion to Christ. And that devotion means... (laughs) John has been really clear at this. He says, the devotion you have to Christ has made you an enemy of the monsters. So I want to read one of those passages where it talks about what it is to be truly devoted to Christ and how that brings the level of protection and safety that you're actually looking for. Now, I like it when you read out loud with me. This is God's word from Revelation 14. Let's read it together. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So what what the scripture is portraying here, and what's so important for us to get, is that yes, the powers of darkness are powerful. But the message of the gospel is, no matter what, Jesus shall reign. And what it's saying over and over again is, yes, there is this monstrous power. And yes, the power of darkness is real, but it will be crushed. All of these imagery about the 144,000, about the, the kind of way that you approach the, the Lamb of God, it all comes out of Psalm 2. Where everything that John is, is, is you know, detailing for us comes out of his biblical knowledge. And in Psalm 2, it says really clearly that God will set his son as king on the throne. 
that he is establishing a hill in Zion, a holy hill. And it says the appropriate response to what God is doing is to kiss the son. So it's always more than just you saying, I'm going to be a moral person. It's always more than just saying, well, I'm going to have a Christian theology or philosophy. No, it is about devotion to the Lord Jesus. Do you not think that in some ways it is interesting that the number one curse that people use in America is the name of the son? They're not kissing, they're cursing. So the scripture is saying it's not, in a way, it's not without purpose that when people are angry, they go, Jesus Christ. It is not, you know, when they want to, when they really want to say how bad they feel or how bad they feel about something, that they're going to use the name of the son because the way into the victory is to kiss the son, not curse the son. Are you, are you hearing me? Because you could say, well, you know, I'm going to try to be a Christian. Whenever someone says to me, I'm trying to be a Christian, I know they're not. Because like Yoda says, there is no try. There is a do or not. You see, either, either you have come to the place where you understand that there is no life apart from the sun, or you're still trying in some way to make yourself acceptable to God. When you recognize how spiritually bankrupt you are and you see that Jesus is offering his righteousness, he is offering his punishment to take your punishment, that Jesus is offering his blood to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and that by uniting your life to his, you will have life eternal, but also you will be forever accepted by the Father. So when you really grasp that because you are in Christ, you are loved as if you were Christ, then there's nothing else to do but kiss the son. And it's the ability to kiss the son that says whether you're a Christian or not. Because if you cannot, then you're not in Christ. Because in Christ, you'll always want to kiss the son. And so what we see in this number, 144,000, again, is not a literal number. It's symbolic. Think about what is a derivative of 144. It's 12 by 12. In the Old Testament, what do we have 12 of? 12 tribes. What do we have in the New Testament? 12 apostles, 12 times 12. So you're talking about the people of the Old Testament and you're talking about the people of the New Testament. This is picture language. It is not, there are only 144,000 out of the billions that have existed. But the key here is the number signifies completion. Jesus will not return till the last of the people have come in. In some ways, that's why our mission is important to reach the unreached people, because the Bible says every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And and again, I love that picture because it means that for all eternity, what's true of your culture will exist. The Bronx accent will go on forever. People will be forgetting about it for a long time, you know. But there'll always be there'll always be what God started here in completion there. Before the throne, you will be the best version of yourself. 
But how does that happen? Well, here it says that on the foreheads of these who are the people of God, redeemed throughout the ages, on the foreheads will be the name of Jesus. And on the forehead will be the name of the Father. And then it says something really interesting is that it's this. It won't just be that there's a mark. It says they will be recognizably his. They are being changed into the likeness of the son. But also John is seeing them changed into the likeness of the father. So what this means in a practical sense is this. Everything happening in your life. Everything you're undergoing, everything that's going on in your life, everything is the Holy Spirit taking away the old mark, making recognizable the new mark of the Son and of the Father. Now, this is sometimes painful. Now, one of the reasons is that we have somehow believed that somewhere in the future, there's going to be this option of getting the mark 666. And so there are a lot of Christians always saying, don't, t- don't get that credit card. Don't get this, this, uh, this particular stamp on your hand or your head or whatever it is. They've utterly missed what John is talking about here. That would have had no value to a first century church. What the first century church understood was that the mark of 666 was the mark of humanity without God. Because the number that God puts forth for perfection is the number seven. These numbers mean something. Completion, perfection, seven. So what happens when you subtract God from seven, you get six. And when you want to make yourself bigger than God, you do six three times. Are you hearing me? I want you to understand something clearly. 666 is not for the future. It's now. We are living in a 666 world, a world of man without God, and every person has that mark already. So the mark has to be erased and a new mark put in its place. And that mark, the Bible says, is the mark of the seal of the Holy Spirit who then does something radical to your whole spiritual DNA and takes your unconnected life, makes it a branch in the vine, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so not only is it important that you're connected to the vine, because there's no life apart from Jesus. Not only is it important that you're connected to the vine, but the Bible says you have to abide in the vine. And then it says the father prunes every branch that's not abiding because it doesn't bear fruit. See, the the problem with so many of us is we want to put plastic fruit on our dead branches and call it fruit. Or another way to put it is, is religious people are basically Christmas trees. They're already dead, but they're well decorated put some lights on it, put some ornaments on it, put some family heirlooms on it. It looks pretty, but it's dead because it's cut off from the source of life. And so the issue isn't your religion or your religious affiliation. It's your relationship to the sun. This is why kiss the sun is such an important thing. Because if you can kiss the sun, then you means you know the sun. It means you're connected to the sun. And so 
Everything that's going on in your life is the curriculum of the Holy Spirit to make you recognizably God's. Now, if you don't want that, he's still going to do that because that's who he is. And so you can either say his curriculum is negative or you can recognize what his curriculum is doing, changing you from the old mark to the new mark of the father and the son. But here's the deal, friends. When the pressure is on, John is saying those who are recognizably his are recognizable when the pressure is on. So when life doesn't go the way you want, which mark is showing up? Is it the old mark of the world? Or is it the new mark of the father? The new mark of the son? And, and here's where you participate because you can decide. You're basically deciding every day, am I team dragon or am I team lamb? I mean, I live in my old 666 world trying to get life from that which will not give me life. Or am I going to devote myself to the son and to the father so that even the things the spirit brings that are not comfortable? I lean into it because I know I'm being transformed into the likeness of, of the son of God. These things are going to happen to you. The question is, will you lean into it or will you run from it? Here's one thing I will tell you. The Holy Spirit is stubborn. If you run today and you realize that wasn't a good idea, he will still be at the same place you ran from. And he will say, we're going to do this lesson again. And when you run away again, he'll still be at that same place. And he'll say, we're going to do this lesson again. And so in some ways, it might be wise of you to do it the first time. <laughs> because he will not give up on you. Amen. He will keep pruning until every branch is connected to the life-giving vine and the fruit that comes forth of it is the characteristics of the son. You know, his commitment is to make you great. Not to make you mediocre. It's to make you great. Well, the question then comes, are you starting to see that you're recognizably his? Now, in verse 4, it says something that has troubled people. It says that the 144,000 have not slept with women, and they are virgins. And that made people go from, well, this is symbolic, to this is literal. So the only people who are in the 144,000 are people who go and join a monastery, or those who go and hide away from the rest of the world. And they're the really, they're the really, you know, spiritual ones, and they're the ones that count with 144,000. But I've been trying to say to you all along, this book is a picture book with picture languages. This is not about people who have literally abstained from sex, and they're not about people who have literally abstained from marriage. It is really about this issue of Babylon. And it is about people who have not given themselves over and been contaminated by the defilement of Babylon. As a matter of fact, when John describes the world in which we live, he says that 
there are those who have drunk the maddening wine of the whore of Babylon and have followed her into her adulteries. All right, so stay with me for a minute. I know I said whore in church and I enjoyed it. I might even say it again in a few minutes because that's what the Bible says and because I really like saying it in church. So, but listen to me in this. This is not about sex. This is about passion. This is about what are you passionate about? This is about what have you given your passion to? Every single one of you has a much greater capacity for spiritual passion than you realize. It is not infinite spiritual passion. It is finite, but it is significant. In the book of Jeremiah, it says that your spiritual passion is so great that it's, he actually says it's like a donkey in heat that the degree of spiritual passion that people have is greater than they realize. And so what they're doing is they're giving their spiritual passion to things that cannot give them life. As a matter of fact, in the scripture, it's really clear. It says, it doesn't say you broke God's rules. It says you broke God's heart. It doesn't say you didn't follow the law. It says you committed spiritual adultery. See, the issue with the Israelites in particular is God saw them as a bride. They went and found adultery with every other God. God said, I wooed you. I, 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 I clothed you. I fed you. I gave you all of the love that I have. And you have turned and you've gone and you've lain with other gods under every tree there is. And he literally says, you've spread your legs for every other god. So when the Bible is talking about this aspect of sexuality, it's really talking about the passion that you have and the passion that you express. Now, Sometimes people will reserve their passion in terms of giving it to God and they'll give it to something else. There was a time I was leading a, a pastor's prayer time and the spirit came upon the pastors and they began to weep and they began to confess and they began to repent. Some fell on their knees. Tears were flowing from their eyes. The leader of the meetings just scrapped the whole agenda of the meeting and we spent the whole night praying together. The next day, one of the pastors goes, I just need to say something. And the pastor said, I don't think we need this much emotion. I don't think we need this much passion. He said, every day I read my Bible. Every day I do my prayer list and then I go about my day. I don't think we need this. One month later, he left his church with his secretary. He had passion. He was giving it to something else. He left. And even, you see, if your passion is not for God, you will rebuke those who do have passion for God. You'll criticize them because of your own guilt, because of your own shame. You see, the Bible's not wrong when it says we're like donkeys in heat. 
It just depends on where we're going to satisfy our passion. And so the scripture says the 144,000 are those who are different in character and who understand the character of the two different cities that we live in. So there's a city of humans that the Bible calls Babylon. And there's the city of God, which you and I have not yet experienced, but we have foretaste of. And so in verse 8, this is where John clearly says that the city that's been developed by the monsters, the dragon and the two beasts, is called Babylon. Now that city was fulfilled in Rome. That city's fulfilled in New York City. That city's fulfilled in Paris. There is the city of Babylon in every generation. Here's what it says about that city. It says, Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So the question then becomes not one about sex. It becomes one about passion. So when the Bible talks about this group of people who are so devoted, there's a purity of the devotion. There's an undefiled devotion. They are unwilling to give themselves to these contaminated characteristics of Babylon. So when you are fully submitted to Jesus and you're surrendering your life to Jesus, suddenly what is Babylon and what is the city of God becomes clear to you. And you begin to realize only Jesus deserves anything that I have and everything that I have. Now, if you're a married person, you should realize that the best thing your spouse can give to you is full devotion to Jesus. If you're a family person, then you realize the best thing you're parenting and the best thing that you can do for your family is to give yourself fully to Jesus. Because here's the thing. If you're utterly devoted to Jesus without distraction, but totally devoted to Jesus, then Jesus will give you the devotion to your wife or to your husband. As a matter of fact, it's really clear in the scripture to husbands. It says, husbands, love your wife just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What wife wouldn't want that? To have that level of faithfulness and devotion. But see, here's the thing. If you try to love your spouse like that from yourself, you have no well to draw on. But when you go to Jesus and he is your happiness and he is your source of strength and he's your source of patience and the source of your joy, then you bring that to your relationships. One of the worst things that I've ever heard in romantic poetry is you complete me. (laughs) Don't you know you're a complete idiot? So what you're doing by saying such things, you know, you're my sun, you're my moon, you know, mi caramelo, you know. uh, (laughs) When you're saying all those things, you're asking them to be what you want or demand they be. So you're making them into the source of your life, which is making them into a dumb idol. And it is, if you're thinking another person can complete you, they will always disappoint you. 
So what you're doing is you're trying to draw from that person and their devotion and your devotion. You're trying to draw from them from an empty tank that they can't give to you. But if you're going to Jesus and saying, I'm utterly devoted to you, Jesus. Then he pours his love on you. Now you have a full tank and you bring it to the marriage. Only Jesus can complete you. And then that can be fulfilled in a loving relationship. The same is true for a family as well. But I want to give you a question that I think will help clarify this. Is there anything in this world, is there something in this world that has such a hold on you that it distracts you from your devotion to Christ? So here's how I think about this particular statement is for some reason, my wife begins to want to have a deep relationship conversation during the Super Bowl. I don't know what it is. She's probably bored. She starts thinking about our children or our future or whatever it is because the game is utterly nonsense to her. She'll sit there with me because she likes the food. But she's not interested in the game. And I'm sitting there looking at the game. There's something going on. Suddenly she goes, what do you think our future will be? You know, like... I'm trying to watch the game. So one of the things that one of the things that I noticed over the years is when she's having these relational thoughts, when she's having these, you know, state of our marriage kind of thoughts, if I'm not focused, that conversation will happen again and again and again. And usually it ends up like this. You never listen to me. You don't really care. And I'm sitting there going, I didn't even hear you. Because I was watching the game. And so what I began to realize is I'm letting something distract me from what I'm actually devoted to. I'm not devoted to that football game. My teams are never in the Super Bowl anyway. <laughs> I'm distracted to something I'm not devoted to. And if I was devoted to, then I would be an idiot because they will always let me down. But I'm devoted to the one who's speaking to me, but I'm letting the distraction get in the way of the devotion. So what I've learned to do, it took me a long time to figure this out, but what I've learned to do is you turn the TV off, you turn the radio off, you turn whatever is distracting you off, and you look that person in the face and you say, what do you want to talk about? And then life is rich and full because you're not distracted, but you're devoted. How much more, if I have to do that for Lisa, how much more do I have to do that for Christ? And while my wife is utterly worthy of my devo devotion, she's still not as worthy as Jesus is. And so you have to look at your life and say, am I living in distraction or am I living in devotion? Because the distraction is not devoted to you. I have learned this. I will not be devoted to that which is not devoted to me. Are you quiet because you're thinking? Okay. 
The donut glaze is something else then. So if you don't understand this, we are living in days where you cannot simply be a moral Christian or a kind of a philosophical Christian. You have to be a devotee to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4b, it not only talks, in verse 4, it not only talks about the mark of the Lamb, but it also talks about the march of the Lamb. And it says this, it says, these are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So in other words, if you are devoted to Christ, you're on a march with the Lamb and you're on a march to the city of God. What this means, friends, and you might not like this, but it means you have to give up control. That you follow him wherever he goes. You don't make him follow you wherever you go. Now, you, you can do that, and he's humble and gracious and will show up when you finally realize he's the leader and you're not. But you can, you can also begin right now to say, there's a march with the Lamb, and we're marching to the city that I have longed for, and I will stay focused on this march. Now, the only time that I remember in the scriptures where there was this clear kind of march with guidance was the Exodus. And one of the words of that march is this, that when the cloud moved, they moved. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with you saying, God, I'm tired. That's realistic. I don't think there's anything wrong with you saying, hey, my shoes are worn out. I don't think any of that is wrong as long as you're being honest and not stopping the march. Because you see, what's showing up is your lack of faith muscle. What's showing up is your lack of ability to overcome the challenges that the march requires. That's not a bad thing. That just means it's time for an upgrade. It just means it's time. I need to keep going, but what I have now is not enough for what I need going forward. And so a a lot of us are thinking, you know, we can stop any time, you know, because most of us, what we really want is we want retirement Jesus. And we want vacation Jesus. And we want do, do not ask too much of me Jesus. And instead, we've got a lamb who's marching to the city of God. And you either follow him or you don't, but you don't follow him at your own peril. Because it will reveal where you have access that you've given to the monsters. And when that happens, he's not going to disown you, but he's going to wait for you to repent. And he's going to wait for you to say, okay, I relinquish control again. I'm going to march with you. I'm going to march on, and I'm going to march all the way through to the city of God. I, I, I cannot tell you more clearly than to say every dream you have every longing that you have, everything that you've ever thought, I'd like to see justice. I'd really like to see flourishing. I'd love to see abundance. I'd love to see no more wasted sorrows. Well, there's a city waiting for you with all of that. It's called New Jerusalem. It's the city of our God. And you are marching there. We will never get there on this earth 
If you think about it for a minute, it says the song they sing is not a song that you can learn. In other words, it has to be the song of the born of the spirit. It has to be the song of those who are marked with the father and marked with the son. Now, are you tracking with me on this? So how do we march? Well, this was helpful to me. Can you stay with me a little longer? You have to anyway. How does one live in a world that is anti-God, devoted to opulence, consistently opposed to the way of the lamb, full of itself and intent on being impressive, protected with the might of its militarism, aiming to become the international power, living on the precipice of constant internal betrayals, driven by economic exploitation of anyone and everyone, structured into a mysterious hierarchical system of power and honor, And at the bottom of it all is driven by arrogance and ambition. How is one to live in Babylon and not be of Babylon when boxed in by Babylon? Empires rise and empires fall, but they're always present in some form. Now, so how do you live in Babylon and not be of Babylon? So what we see continually in all of these pictures of John is you see how bad things are and then you see the throne. And so what we see is you cannot march to New Jerusalem without worship. See, there's a vision of the Lamb who's worshipped and announced as the only one who's worthy. And so what we see is Revelation, the book of Revelation is really about worship. And those who choose, I like this word, dissident disciples, those who say, I won't be contaminated by Babylon. I won't be seduced by the whore. I will not give myself back to team dragon. Well, those who do that are those who worship the Lamb of God. The major habit of the book of Revelation is worship. Do you understand that what you worship is what you become? If you worship the lamb, you'll become characteristically, recognizably like the lamb and his father. But if you worship money, you'll become greedy. If you worship your family, and many people have said to me, family is everything. When you worship your family, then your family has to become what you want them to become. And I don't know if you've noticed, but teenagers don't tend to do that. If you worship your job, you can still get laid off. Anything that you give your passion to here will disappoint you unless you are worshiping with the lamb. The worship of the lamb changes you into the very image of the one you're worshiping. Now, I want to finish because I hear the music. I want to finish with this. He says this. He says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So there will be this, there will be this moment where if Jesus doesn't return before you die, that you will die and you will be presented to God. And when you who have died in the Lord are presented to God, you will hear 
This person is blessed. This person is to rest from their labors. This person is to enter into a whole new level of living. But one of the things I had missed that I saw for the first time, notice what it says, their deeds will follow them. Their deeds are not coming before them. Their deeds are not qualifying them. Their deeds are following after them. In other words, if you come having died and say, look at the good stuff I've done, he'll say, you have no place here. If you say, I I should be accepted because I did more good things than bad things, and he'll say, you never understood anything. But if you come and you say, I come because Jesus died for me. Jesus died in my place. Jesus' blood has cleansed me of all my unrighteousness. Jesus' righteousness is now my record. And I stand before you as one in Christ, Christ in me and I in Christ. And you do that and the Father says you're blessed and the Spirit says you're blessed. And then what's so surprising is because you gave your heart and your life to Jesus and you united your life to Christ, there's going to be all these incredible deeds that follow you that the Spirit's going to say, look, what, look at all the impact that you've made. Look at all the ways that you were obedient and private, but look at these people who are following Christ because of you. If you've been a parent that has introduced your children to Jesus, you're going to have generations of people who know Christ because you stood as a generational marker of the goodness of God. There's going to be so many things and so many people that are going to be impacted just by you being in Christ. And all of this will show up. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Many of us, all we ever do is focus on our mistakes. All we ever do is focus on our failures. All we ever do is focus on our guilt and our shame. Do you know what? That's the, that is the ministry of the dragon. Because his ministry is to accuse you day and night. But if you understand the gospel, then you understand every mistake has already been covered. Every sin has already been punished. All of the wrath of God, all of the justice of God has been exhausted in Christ. So every little obedience that you do is a dagger in the heart of the dragon. Every time you listen and you follow and you're led by the Spirit, you are crushing that unholy trinity in a way that you could never crush them otherwise. I tell you, friends, you're going to be amazed at how many deeds follow you. So here's, are you hearing me? So I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor. Okay, if you know them, if you know them, I want you to point at their head. If you don't know them, just kind of point nicely. But I'm going to close this. I want you to be prophetic now. I want you to, I'm not asking you to decide what their deeds were good and which were bad. I'm asking you to prophetically declare that the deeds of the Spirit are going to follow this person. Because I want you to, I want them to realize every step of obedience is a dagger at the dragon. Every time, every time they do and speak and act in the Spirit, they are putting to death this unholy trinity. So look at them, point at them and say this, I believe that great deeds are following you because you are in Christ and because Christ is in you.
Say it one time, more time. I believe. I believe. And if you can't say it, see, I'm seeing it right now. I'm seeing things follow you. Okay, so say, I see it. I see it. That great deeds, that great deeds are, following you. are following you. Impact is being made. Because you are in Christ. Because Christ is in you.